0: As we continue in our sermon series in in the book of Micah, that I've entitled "Who Is Like God," I, I just thought it was great how the uh, the second song that we sang, "Days of Elijah," the the bridge in there, kept proclaiming "Who is?" Uh, there's no God like Jehovah, right? This this question that we're answering in this series, we were. Or that we're asking in this series, we were answering and proclaiming uh, as we were singing there. So, um, one of the one of the more intense, I guess I would say, cross cultural experiences that I've had in my life was uh, when I and, and Dave Steffen and Matt Keen went to India with the Life Song group back in 2016. And There were a lot of reasons that that was a, a uh, cross cultural experience for me. But but one of the one of the things that made it that was the religious setting in which we found ourselves. So so roughly eighty uh, percent of people in India consider themselves to be of the Hindu religion, and uh, the uh, Hinduism is is a polytheistic religion, which means that they they uh, Hindu people worship multiple gods. Now, depending who you talk to, some would say that there are 33 Hindu gods. Others would say that there's 330 million Hindu gods. <laughs> that's, that's quite the range, right? 33, 330 million they're all false gods anyway, so I, I'm not sure how valuable it is to argue about the exact number and, and land on one. But but regardless, one of the things I remember about our time in India was was the various Hindu temples that we would see that that were all dedicated to different Hindu gods, and and we would we would just kind of see them as we were driving place to place. Now now before our trip, I I, I would I would have pictured Hindu temples as as being these these very large, uh, architecturally ornate buildings. And while there are definitely some Hindu temples that fit that stereotype, many that, that we saw were, were pretty small. They were simple, but, but, they're, but very colorfully decorated. And so, so I went online to find some pictures. These aren't the exact ones that we saw, but but they're similar to what what I remember seeing. So if we can get the the first one up here. This is so you can see it's the building itself, it's kind of kind of a simple building, but yet there's there's gods that are pictured through these different statues and beings. There's a big one off to the left there and then then there's smaller ones up top. And there's a lot of motorbikes in India, so of course you would you would see those in front, but but uh, if we can go ahead and go, Caitlin, go to the next one there. Here, here's another one, kind of more out in the open. Again, just a square. I mean, the structure looks like it can't probably be probably be more than 12 feet wide and, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet deep. like it's not huge. It's not a huge place, but yet. then up top, very, very ornate, and again, more more pictures of the gods that, that are worshipped there. And then I've got one more. Um, if we can put that one up, again, same kind of thing. This one's a little more colorful but again you can see see the different different images there and and i don't know if you can tell uh, up top there um, that that is a picture of a god a uh, human i think on like a lion type thing but but six arms coming out of uh, out of that i don't know if you say person or but anyway it's it's, it's quite the quite the depiction of the god that's worshipped there now now, when I think about idolatry, worshiping idols, the, that type of thing is, is what first comes to my mind. That, 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 that's the, the picture that I have first. I picture an image of a, a make-believe God, which people go into a temple or, ho- or other holy building to worship. They might burn incense or say prayers or, or, or do whatever prescribed rituals. And that is indeed a form of idolatry, without a doubt. But as we're going to see this morning, it's definitely not the only form of idolatry that the Bible speaks of. So, so before you and I look at the topic for this morning and say, well, I, I don't bow down to a, a statue in my house or anywhere else, so, so I'm, I'm good in this area, um, let, let's hear Micah out as, as he talks about the idolatry that had taken root among God's people in his time. So we're going to begin this morning in Micah chapter 1, and to refresh your memory from last week, last week I kind of gave an overview of the book of Micah. We talked about how the, how the, the general message is one of both judgment and hope. There are three main oracles which Micah gives. All three begin with stark messages of judgment and conclude with a message of hope. The next five weeks, we're going to focus on different themes that are present throughout the book. And and today, of course, we're going to look at the theme of idolatry that that comes up. So uh, look with me at verse 2 of Micah chapter 1. And we'll see how Micah begins this first prophetic message. He says this, verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. So I'm just going to stop right there. Remember last week, we, we talked about how Micah's words were focused upon the things taking place in northern Israel and southern Judah. What we see at the very beginning this morning is that even though the words are about Israel and Judah, his, his words, his message is given to all peoples of the earth. So he's talking about Israel and Judah, but it's for everybody to hear. In other words, this, this, this is an open message. It's meant to be communicated to all who would hear it. What, what, what God is going to reveal about himself is to be told to everyone, okay? So, so with that being said, let's, let's jump back in, and, and really let's notice that before anything is said about idols or false gods, the true God is presented to us in great majesty. So I'll just start at the beginning of verse 2 again. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So there's some things that stand out to me as God is described in these verses and things really that, that that will stand in stark contrast to idols and false gods. So so first let's look at in verse 2 how how God is presented as sovereign lord. Okay and and, and this is one of the times it really pays off to have the text in front of you looking at it halfway through verse 2 the almighty is named As Lord God in the ESV uh, from which I'm reading. Okay, and and so the two Hebrew words, the two Hebrew names used here are Adonai Yahweh. So it's translating Adonai Yahweh into Lord God. And if you notice in the text, the, the second name is all capital letters, capital G, capital O, capital D. You might be saying, "Well, well wait a minute. I, I thought I thought Yahweh is usually translated as Lord in all capital letters, capital L-O-R-D. And and yeah, it, it, it normally is. Yahweh is normally translated that way. But because the name given here is Adonai Lord, the way that Adonai is usually translated into English is Lord, but not all caps like Yahweh is. So so if if the translators were to translate that as Lord, Lord, and let the Lord, Lord be a witness against you. I, in English, it doesn't flow well. It's not pleasing to the ear, right? Like it's, you know, one would be small letters, one would be capitals, so you'd see the difference, but, but it, it just wouldn't make sense reading it. So as a result, the ESV that we're reading from translates it as Lord God. It keeps the capital letters in the second part of the title to represent that name Yahweh. Um, Now now other translations do it differently. If If you're reading from the NIV this morning or the NLT, they keep Yahweh, the second part, as Lord, like we would normally find it, and they translate Adonai as sovereign, which is an equally valid way to translate Adonai into English. It it, it still communicates that idea of lordship, so you have sovereign lord in other translations. So, So all that to say, when Micah communicates that God is a witness in his holy temple and that he will come down and tread upon the high places, those places where idols and false gods especially are worshiped, Micah's speaking of God in a way that, that just shows that he is far exalted above all those other gods, all those false gods of those high places. This is Adonai Yahweh. He's not to be confused with any of these other gods. This is the sovereign Lord that we're talking about here. His sovereignty, his control, his authority must not be forgotten or overlooked or or ascribed to anyone else, which is often the temptation with idolatry. So what we see here is that this is God presented to us as sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh. And then in addition, he comes from his holy temple. It's another strong contrast with all the unholy high places where the people would go and worship false gods and idols. So part of what it means to be holy is is to be set apart. It is to be distinct. And not in a bad way, but in the best way possible. There's a sacredness to God that that cannot be matched by by any idol. And in fact, as as we'll see, God often talks about idolatry Using the language of adultery and prostitution, those things speak of defilement and, and profaneness. God is the opposite of that, He is holy. And then finally, we see that God is, is mighty in these first few verses, He, he will tread upon those high places where people worship idols. Mountains will melt under him, valleys split open before him. Uh, It just takes me back to that, uh, that story when Elijah did spiritual battle with the false prophets of the false god Baal on Mount Carmel. And those false prophets set up this animal on the altar, and they danced around it all day long, trying to get Baal to respond, to, to light it on fire. And they did all they could, and nothing worked. It sat there at the end, just as it had at the beginning when they started the whole thing. But then Elijah steps up to his altar, and he calls on the mighty God And fire falls from the sky and consumes everything. It consumes the animal sacrifice, but it also consumes the water that had been dumped on it. And even the stone altar itself. I mean, talk about fire. (laughs) Consuming stones. God is mighty. And there, especially in that story with Elijah, he is shown to be mighty in a way that those other false gods any idols that represent false gods just are not. Such a stark contrast there. So, so what we get in the beginning of this first message from Micah is, is before any charges or accusations are brought against God's people, God himself is presented as the sovereign, holy, mighty God. We can't miss that as, as he begins his message. There, there, there's, that, that's something that we do well to remember. We ought to have a good sense of awe and reverence and fear as it pertains to our God. He, he, he's not someone to be controlled or manipulated or ignored. Now, I... I don't think it means we need to be scared as we gather together this morning, but, but are we appropriately in awe is the right question to ask. I, I know there's times where, where I don't remember that as I should. Even thinking when I come up here to preach, I'm not always thinking in that way as I ought to be. I, I, I'll sometimes be asked if I'm nervous when I, when I preach, public speaking uh, it's just not something that bothers me so in that sense like no i'm not nervous as i as i preach but but i also wonder at times like am i am i appropriately reverent considering the nature of what i'm doing do i remember that every time like i should i mean h- however i would i would however i would act and feel if if jesus himself in the flesh were sitting in the front row this morning probably what about how I ought to act and feel every time I preach, right? Especially since God is an awesome God, and he's present with us today and every other time that we gather, and he's always present with us. So, so all that to say, our God is that awesome God, and we ought to be rightly in awe of him, And so we're led to that, I think, in these first three verses. Micah speaks of God in that way. Now, after that introduction, after after Micah presents God to us, the people maybe would have expected him to begin homing in on the idolatry of all the other nations. But that's not what happened. Look with me at verse 5. It says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? The idolatry, which, which Micah is going to highlight He's not talking about what's taking place in all the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. There was idolatry there, for sure. But what Micah is focusing on this morning is the idolatry taking place within Israel and Judah. And it, and it wasn't just that it was, oh, I was in these outlying areas, and there's kind of some people rebelling, and they need to be brought back into—no, no. Samaria and Jerusalem, the capitals— I mean, the the centers of the two nations, in more ways than one, they are the ones identified as having idolatry taking place within them. I imagine, imagine this would have shocked the people, at least a little bit, if not a lot, especially those living in southern Judah, where Jerusalem was. The fact that idolatry was taking place in Jerusalem, the place where God's temple was built, it should have been shocking to hear that. It should have caused them to pause and consider this message from Micah. I mean, Jeremiah notes, about 100 years after Micah, Jeremiah notes how the people at that time would just kind of shrug off the potential of of judgment from God upon Jerusalem, and especially on the temple, by saying Well, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In essence, saying God's not going, I mean, come on, what's he really going to do to his temple? It's in in essence what they're saying. And Micah is saying, no, idolatry is taking place in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people were being deceived by their idolatry. They thought God was pleased with their actions when, in fact, he's preparing to bring judgment against them. And that's one of the things that idolatry does. It, it deceives us. We, we ascribe power and wisdom and authority to things that have none, and we begin to think of God, the true God, as having less power and less wisdom and less authority than he does and we uh, uh, Pastor Tim read for us from uh, from Isaiah this morning? I mean, Isaiah is Micah's contemporary; they're ministering about the same time. And when Isaiah spoke of idolatry among the people, he he said that they were they were foolishly creating idols and images from a piece of wood. And half of, this, half of this log they would put into the fire, and they would burn it for warmth and light and cooking food. And, and the other half of the log they would shape into an idol and worship it. And, and Isaiah is essentially saying, like, that's a deranged way of thinking. What are you doing? <laughs> And Isaiah, he says that the people were so deceived that they could not recognize that. They couldn't recognize the derangement or or the lie that they had come to believe. They were deceived by the idolatry that was taking place. That's what idols do. They deceive us into thinking that they are more than they actually are. Now, if we continue on, we we see that, uh, that the idolatry doesn't just lead to uh, deception, but, but it leads to judgment as well. Look at verse six of chapter one. It says, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, and this is Micah speaking from his his perspective here, for this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah, it has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem." So through Micah, God is warning his people that judgment is coming. And, and, and God has warned his people throughout the Bible to avoid idolatry. It, it, it's stated in the Ten Commandments. It's stated other places in the Old Testament law. God warned the people before they went into the Promised Land. If, if, if you don't destroy the high places and if you intermarry with people who are worshiping these false gods, you too will fall into it. He warned them. He told them exactly what would happen. But they didn't listen. His people ignored that. And so rather than worship God alone, they agreed to worship the gods of the nations with whom they entered into alliances. They agreed to worship the gods of the people from other nations whom they married. And as a result, because God is is rightly jealous, for the worship that rightly belongs to him and him alone. And because the people broke their covenant with him, he was bringing judgment upon them. Our our God is a just God. That'll be our focus next week. We're going to really look at the justice of God. And so as a result of God being just, he must justly judge idolatry says he's going to to beat the carved image into pieces. He's going to lay waste to the idols. and, And as Micah would go on to proclaim, he's going to do all that by sending the nation of Assyria. They would bring about the fall of Samaria in northern Israel, the capital of northern Israel. Assyria was just going to lay waste to it. And even though they didn't quite cause the city of Jerusalem and southern Judah to fall, they would inflict great pain upon the city and upon the people in southern Judah. And again, we'll get into that a little more next week. Idolatry is, is sinful rebellion against God, and he rightly judges it as such. And I, I think that's why in verses 8 and 9, we, we, it, it led Micah to lament what was going to happen, what was happening, and what was going to happen in response to the people's idolatry. He he knew what was coming upon God's people, and it, it made him sorrowful. He desired to see God's people worship God and God alone, rather than place their trust in these empty idols that could do nothing to save them when God's judgment came upon them. Those idols were going to show themselves for what they really were, Now, again, going, going back to those Hindu temples in, in India, I, as I said, that, that, that's kind of where my mind first goes when I think about idolatry. And, and I might too often limit my thinking of idol worship and false god worship to something like that. But the reality is that idolatry is, is more prevalent in our own culture and even in our own Christian context, than we might recognize or want to admit. Um, In our family, we're we're working our way through something called uh, the the New City Catechism. It's it's a book of 52 questions and answers about God and the things of God. And I wanted to share with you question and answer number 17 because I think that the clarity and simplicity of it is just so helpful. The question is, what is idolatry, right? Fitting for this morning. What is idolatry? The, the answer in that is this. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Idolatry is trusting in the created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, our significance, and security. Now, according to that definition of idolatry, I'm guilty. And we all would be guilty, wouldn't we? But there isn't a person here who hasn't, hasn't in in, in one way or another, at one time or another, sought to, to place our trust in something or someone that was created, rather than the creator. And so the bad news is that that means... Because God is a just God who judges idolatry, we are all deserving of God's judgment poured out upon our idolatry. We have reason to be fearful of the sovereign, holy, mighty God who will justly judge. That's the bad news. The good news is that unlike God's people in the time of Micah, we have a Savior who has already come and offered himself on the cross in order to take God's judgment for our sins upon himself. And Micah would go on to prophesy about that ruler born in Bethlehem who would deliver his people from judgment. We worship Jesus, the Lamb of God, who delivers us by taking that judgment upon himself. Now, it doesn't mean that... uh, that any future idolatry in our lives doesn't matter because well Jesus has already taken the judgment so we're good. That, that that's not it at all. And along with that, we don't we don't we don't cease committing idolatry in order to be saved. That, that's not what it's about. It's not like okay we have to stop stop committing idolatry so that we can be saved. It's because we are saved we ought to cease committing idolatry. We ought to be walking away from idol worship. And so even though we're saved from the judgment we deserve, we still ought to take note of the different forms of idolatry and how they can creep into our lives in different ways. And Micah goes on in chapter 5, I think, to highlight some of those different forms of idolatry. It's not an exhaustive list of, but it's a good one that he gives to us as far as being thorough and hitting some main things. So look with me at chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, verse 10. And Micah says this, and in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey." So in verse ten, Micah says, "He says in that day," declares the Lord, "that the day of which Micah speaks probably refers to the day when Jesus returns to Earth, the day of the Lord. It's at the second coming of Jesus that that all will be set right and idolatry will be cut off forever. At that point, we won't have to worry about idolatry anymore. But but in Christ, we don't sit around twiddling our thumbs while we while we wait for that to happen." As God does his sanctifying work in us now, he's moving us away from idolatry and, and toward full and complete trust in him, in him alone. And so, so the day of Jesus' return is coming for sure, but there's also a sense in which it, it, it has begun now. He lives within us through his Holy Spirit presently, and he's working in us to do these things even now. And so in verse 10, we see one of the things that that Micah talks about is Jesus cutting off horses into chariots. Those were the military forces of that day. How easy it is to place our trust in military might, especially when we reside in the country that, that would have the strongest military on the planet, right? It's easy for us to say, well, we're we're secure in that not that there's no threats right but but we feel good about about the the military that we've got and if that's where we're ultimately looking for security then it's idolatry it's it's putting our trust in something created rather than the creator but when we think about military might I, I don't think we stop, should stop right there. I think we ought to go a little deeper and say, it might, it might not be our, our standing military, but it might be something more personal that we look to for our security, All right? It could be our own physical strength that we're putting trust in, saying, well, I can handle this situation myself, and so I'm feeling secure in that. It, it, could, be, it could be a security system that we install, Right? It could be a weapon of some kind that we have. It, it, it could be an unguessable computer password. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of things that, that, that we, can, we can look to first and foremost for security. I'm not saying we can't have any of those things, right? But, but the question is, are we looking to those things to provide peace and security that can only truly be found in God? And that's the essence of what idolatry is looking to the created rather than the creator. So, so as we are being sanctified in Christ, God is moving us away from, from the idolatry of trusting in people or things for ultimate security. And Micah highlights that here in verse 10. He goes on in verse 11 to talk about something different. He talks about cities and strongholds in verse 11, those things being cut off. Uh, Micah's not being anti-city and pro-small town. I mean, that, that's not what he's talking about here. But cities and strongholds, they, they, they were things that mankind built in order to be significant and secure. Right? I mean, this, this goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Right? Building something, it, it's, it's about status in a lot of ways. It's about looking for happiness in things. It's about making a name for ourselves that is revered by others, right? The, the, the idol of status is a big one in our affluent society. And so the question we ought to ask is, is, how often do we make decisions and shape our lives around trying to achieve a certain level of prosperity or influence or notoriety it's it's a form of idolatry, and, and man, one, one, one I can sure feel the pull of in my life. So as we're being sanctified in Christ, God is moving us away from the idolatry of looking to those things for happiness and significance, those created things. He goes on in verse 12. He talks about sorceries and, and fortune tellers. This is trying to manipulate things through spells or rituals, or or trying to control the future by knowing the future. And in in essence, it's seeking to be divine-like in order to achieve the outcome we personally desire. So that's why people in Micah's time would go to the high places and they would take part in the pagan rituals performed to the gods of rain and fertility that they sought to manipulate things in order to assure adequate rainfall for the harvest, or, or fertility within their families. That's so why people in our time get involved with things like witchcraft or horoscopes, or even things like the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a form of this. It, it prosperity gospel promises health and wealth if certain things will be done. It's the same as this. It's seeking to, to, to manipulate the divine, bring about the outcome that, that we believe is in our favor. So again, as, as God is, as, as he is sanctifying us in Christ, he's moving us away from the idolatry of divine manipulation as a way to try to secure happiness and, and security. And then finally, in verses uh, 13 and 14, Micah talks about trusting in carved images, the, the, the work of our hands. In essence, trusting in our own efforts. The appeal of works righteousness, a system like that, is, is, is that I'm able to take matters into my own hands, right? I, I, I've got this list. If I do this, 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 and this, and then I'm good, right? And, and, and there's control there, and we like being able to grab hold of that. And, you know, even though every one of us knows that we're flawed in different ways, there's, there's still something alluring and comforting about taking charge and controlling the situation, or at least thinking that we are. It becomes so easy to, to trust in ourselves, rather than trust in God. And, and we live in a day and age when mankind believes that every problem can be addressed with a man-made solution. I mean, that, that's just the world in which we live. And so this can be a big pull on us. And, and so the question then, uh, again, like the others, uh, as we're being sanctified in Christ, God is moving us away from the idolatry of works righteousness into a deeper trust and dependence upon Him, not upon ourselves. So, as Micah makes clear to God's people and to all peoples of the earth in, in chapter 1, not only is idolatry a, a turning away from the sovereign, holy, mighty God, it's rebellion against him, which, which he will judge justly. He made that point very clear. People of northern Israel experienced that shortly after Micah spoke those words. It wasn't long didn't happen in southern Judah for another hundred years or so, but but eventually they were led into exile as well. Again, we, we are so blessed that Jesus has taken the judgment for idolatry upon himself. So we don't have to face the consequences of that judgment, how blessed we are in Christ. But at the same time, we're not immune from the pull to idolatry. In Christ, God is hes working. He's cutting off those pulls within us if we will yield ourselves to him and to the work that he is doing. The time's going to come, that that day of the Lord, the time will come on the new earth when those things will be completely cut off. We will not even have to worry about the pull to idolatry anymore. That'll be the day. (laughs) <laughs> I look forward to that. And we're going to worship God fully in that day. We're going to worship him completely. There will not be a trace of idolatry, but he's not waiting until then to begin his work. He's doing it in us even now. And so we ought to examine ourselves and and, and see if, if there is a form of idolatry that's made its way into our lives. Micah gives us some good things to think about in chapter 5 especially, good questions to ask as we seek to identify any place idolatry has creeped in. May we be people who daily choose to reject that pull to trust in created things and instead put our trust fully and squarely in the Creator who alone deserves to be worshiped above all things. Let's stand together and and, and come before God in prayer and, and, and ask him to continue that work within us, to shine the light where it needs to be shown in our lives, to give us strength to stand up to that temptation. Heavenly Father, I... I think we ought to start like Micah did and just say, you, you are awesome. You're mighty, sovereign, holy. So many other attributes, God. We could keep going and going. There, there's none like you. We have sang it already. There's no God like Jehovah. That is especially clear when we, when we look at you compared to idols. Those are, those are false gods, cheap imitations. We thank you for who you are that you are the mighty God, the one and only. There's none like you. God, uh, help us to remember that. We can be distracted in this life. Our our attention can be drawn to, to things that are pretending to be you, pretending to possess the qualities that you possess, but they don't. God, those things fall short. It's nothing more than the other half of the log that was just burned for fire. God, so help us to recognize that. Give us that wisdom and that discernment in our lives to to see when we're putting our our trust in things that, that are created, putting our trust in things that will not last, that will fail us, that will come up short. And God, guide us each day that we might trust in you more and more because you are firm and you are secure you are unchanging God and you will never fail us so would you guide us in that and God we thank you as we've talked about that, that you took the judgment we deserved upon the cross that you took that upon yourself without it we're, we're doomed we're, there's no hope for us but we thank you that you've done that and that in you we are forgiven and we are, we are made holy and righteous. We thank you for that blessing. God, help us to live in that reality today and every day that follows. We pray this in your name. Amen.